0: Welcome to Digging the Dharma, where we dig into the Buddhist Dharma and explore ways of bringing these 2,500 year old teachings into our lives. I'm Doug Smith of Doug's Dharma on YouTube and the Online Dharma Institute.
1: And I'm John Aaron, teacher at New York Insight Meditation Center and Space to Meditate and an MBSR teacher and trainer.
0: Well, hello, John. Good to see you again, as always. Good Good (laughs) to see you as well, Doug. Yeah, so. see you on the screen, which is nice. Although for our for our audience, they'll just hearing us both. But that's okay. yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, it's true. I haven't seen you in three dimensions for a while.
0: Yeah, it's been, um, it's
1: been a bit. Well, it's just the way things work. But anyway,
0: today, food. Ah, uh,
1: Yes, today's topic. Food. 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 What an interesting topic for a Buddhist discussion group.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's there's actually stuff that uh, you know that the Buddha had to say about eating, about food, uh, yeah. for mostly for for monastics, for a monastic audience, although some for a sort of a general audience, and yeah. even the stuff that he directed towards monastics, I think we can at least take and learn from. Sure. Even if we don't necessarily want to follow all the minutiae, because it's a little bit onerous for most of us probably, but, you know, worth learning about and hearing about. Well,
1: I should say, I mean, by the time this comes out, I may be myself in the middle of a monastic retreat. Oh, there you go. <laughs> yeah, because uh, <clears throat> I'll be gone from mid-November to mid-December, and and when you're on a monastic, when you're on a retreat that's led by monastics, you basically follow, kind of follow their, their schedule. I mean, mm-hmm. we can talk about that, but, yeah. So there's both you know the the eating schedule, as it were, and I think it's different. You know, depending on the tradition. I mean, the Theravada monastics or the the the, the monastics that are quote in the Theravada tradition have a very specific vinaya that they're they're practicing, and and the the monastic rules are very clear on this.
0: And they're the ones that go back to the early traditions. Yeah. At least yeah. In, At least in this regard. Yeah. Um, yeah
1: i mean zen traditions have different things that you know so it's we can't generalize but mm. but when you think about the later traditions particularly the zen tradition i mean and, and certain traditions the the meal is a very important place of practice um so there's that but i know you're you're you were, you were planning to do a video on this if you haven't already and i'm curious to know sort of what the you know what? What is coming out as you're as you're researching this, or as you researched right. it? Yeah.
0: yeah, I mean, I'll, the video probably. I'm not sure when exactly this this will be out, as compared to the video. But yeah, I was researching it, basically trying to look at what the Buddha had to say, because what he had to say to monastics was at times controversial, and I think that's kind of interesting. I mean, it's I love these the suttas that give you a bit of a window on what life might have been like in the early Sangha, uh, insofar as they can. And when there are disagreements and and difficulties between people is when I, I think the, the suttas seem the most genuine to me, because that's the sort of stuff that wouldn't have been made up after the fact, you know? Mm, uh, mm, true. It, it's stuff that only, you would think, would only come from, uh, you know, a an eyewitness of some kind. And so, the Buddha did say, for example that his monastics were not to uh eat after a certain time of day and that they were only supposed to eat one meal a day and both of these strictures both of these rules that the buddha laid down seem to have been controversial that uh, so so what that tells us is in the early sangha there were no rules like this and people mm. uh, the, the, the monastics could eat at any time they could eat as many meals as they wanted and what would happen, or at least uh, the the story comes down to us, that as a result, some of the monastics seem to have gone on alms round. Uh, let's just say that in order for them to get food, they had to go on alms right, round. Right, One of the rules, uh, and this is general in India for, for certain kinds of uh, renunciants, is they're not allowed to feed themselves, that they're supposed to only they to can get, feed
1: themselves. They're not allowed to make their own food. Right, right.
0: They're not allowed to make their own food. They're not allowed to feed themselves in the, in the broader sense of the term. Right. I mean, they, they can all they can do is eat what was given to them. Right. They can't grow their own food, they can't cook their own food, and so on. And so, it seems as though some of the monastics were sort of going into the, the villages to get food uh, often. You know, maybe they go two or three times a day. So, there was some story about the, the monastics scaring women at night because they were sort of wandering around looking for food, you know. And clearly this, <laughs> this, this really wasn't what the Buddha had in mind.
1: Right. Uh, it's also wasn't fair to the community.
0: Well, exactly. And, and yeah. It, yeah, it's not fair to the community. And you can imagine sort of monastics, you know, spending all their time eating, basically. Uh, and <laughs> might have happened. Yeah, so the Buddha laid down these rules, and there are a couple of monastics, there are two, at least two suttas where mona- different monastics just didn't want to put up with it. They just said, no, I'm not, do- you know, not going to eat only one meal a day. And so, you know, there's this kind of back and forth between the Buddha and these different monastics about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, enforcing the rules. And he was, he was quite a, the Buddha was quite a taskmaster. He's basically saying, look, if you want to, you know, if you want to advance on the path with me, you're going to have to, you know, follow this rule. Uh. Yeah.
1: And interestingly, I mean, these days, at least both the monastics that we've housed in our apartment when they've been passing through, um, but also when I've been on retreat with monastics, it's more, they they eat two meals a day, Mm. you know, but they don't eat anything after noon. Right. And then, of course, well, all right, what happens with daylight savings? You mm-hmm. know, when do they do they switch and there is that. Yeah, uh, what counts as noon? You know, exactly. Yeah. And so there's that. And then the other interesting thing is that there are certain certain things they can eat later. Um requisites. They can and it turns out they can eat dark chocolate because it was considered medicinal. <laughs> and then I know one senior monk who was staying with us who if offered cheese late in the day would eat cheese <laughs> you know I, i'm not exactly sure how that fit into the requisites but <laughs> uh and i forgot to ask him how it did so you know there's a little kind of you know the and you know the other thing that's so interesting is that even and so monastics now they have their bowl and we're talking about the, the early, you know, the, those from the early traditions. They, they, they'll come with their, their bowl. And not when they're, I mean, when they stay with us, they don't have their, they may have their bowl with them, but they don't use their bowl in, in our home. But when they're on retreat, you know, and these are retreat centers that are not just doing monastic retreats. So, you know, we have serving, we have knife and forks and, you know, things and, and plates But we put their food in a bowl. So whatever, you know, various things are there, they get kind of mixed up. And so it's very interesting is the chant that they will recite before eating. is very specific in what it says. And I'll just have to recall it from memory. But basically, what we are eating is purely for the sustenance of this body. It's not for enjoyment, it's not for vanity, or it's not for, you know, whatever. And as you pointed out, they would eat whatever they were given. Mm. You know, so the rule around meat, allegedly, was that you couldn't eat meat that was killed partic- you know, specifically for you, right. for, for the monastic. Mm-hmm. But if you were given meat, you had to eat it. Um, and I think that may have been one of the, as I recall that the buddha's cousin who was trying to get rid of you know who was trying to usurp him he he said no we shouldn't be eating meat at all i think
0: right a devadatta yeah devadatta yeah yeah i mean that was one of the big a big um, schism in the early sangha was right i mean i don't think that um i don't think that the buddha said now i'm I, I don't know the the monastic rules well enough to be absolutely 100% sure on this but i don't think the buddha said you had to eat whatever was given you only that Basically, you could eat whatever was given you. I mean, in other words, it was right. if so you was, didn't want you eat to eat something, you didn't have right. to eat it. But right. but uh, there was no, there was never any uh, stricture against you eating what was given to you, as long right. as you knew right. it was not killed for you.
1: Yeah, that's right. That makes more sense.
0: So, I mean, in other words, if if a, if a monastic wanted to be vegetarian in the early sangha, I assume they could have been. There was no rule against it. Hmm. But you were not allowed to ask somebody only to give you certain things. That was, I think that was one of them. So, in other words, if you went to beg to a house uh, for alms, you couldn't say, oh, just give me this, I don't want that. Right, right,
1: right. You had to give
0: whatever, you had to take whatever they gave you. Yeah. Um, Because otherwise it becomes intrusive uh, on the lay population, because, you know, then the monastics end up just sort of saying, oh, I only want sweets or something. You know, (laughs) I mean, you know, cook something for me specially kind of thing, and that's not yeah. Clearly that's not the idea.
1: And that's so interesting because on retreat with monastics. So I'll just describe the scene, right? So and this is at the forest refuge at IMS at Insight Meditation Society. And so there's a long table that has dishes laid out, you know, salads and whatever the main course is, and starch, etc. It's you know, the food is quite good. All vegetarian, of course. And so the monastics come in and they are served first, right? (laughs) But uh, contrary to what you just said, they may point to things that they like or want more of, you know, because there's plenty of food. And so, you know, we're practicing generosity and we're supporting the monastics. So if they point to something, oh, you know, could I have more? Beans or whatever, you know, you give them more beans, and so it's not just what we give them, right? So that's an interesting conundrum there, you know, and um, uh, but that's cool, you know. I mean, you know, we want them to be well sustained, and um,
0: I guess if there's lots of choices, then what? Who who cares, right? You know, yeah, they can't eat it all. So,
1: <laughs> but the other interesting aspect, and, and this I can relate just from monastics who have stayed with us, or or even monastics who have you know, sort of managed events for New York Insight occasionally, you know, if there's something like a sweet or something or a f- piece of fruit available, and I'll say, would you like a piece of fruit? Well, they, sometimes it won't even be that. It'll be like, would you mind offering You know, would, would you mind <laughs> offering me this? <laughs> they can't take it, you know, in other words, that there's a gesture of offering. Right, right. I mean, which from our point of view as a community member is actually a beautiful thing. But it is kind of interesting when you kind of realize that, oh, they, they have their little glitches in their own sure, practice, too, sure. that they are perfectly, you know, willing to kind of occasionally
0: bend. Well, and also, um, it's also, we live in a very different culture nowadays. Um, of course. So we don't have the idea of alms round. Yeah. Um, and so we have to sort of, you know, we have to do our best with the culture that we're in to try to yeah. Uh, yeah. deal with this sort of somewhat foreign kind of ways way of, of dealing with, with food. Yeah.
1: And it's it's very interesting that there's one one monk in particular who comes to, through the city a lot, who I've become friends with, and he doesn't stay with us. Is a place in Midtown where he stays in the in the '50s, and he's he's German, but he practices in the Thai Forest tradition. So we will meet for lunch, and and the place where he normally stays, I think, is in the mid '50s on the West Side, now on Tenth Avenue. Ninth Avenue. There are a whole series of Thai restaurants. So, And he has to eat before noon. So I've met him at like, you know, 11.15. And we'll go to a Thai restaurant, which may not even be open yet, but they'll see him at the door. And they will open the door. And they will be so happy that he's there. Oh,
0: that's fascinating.
1: That's great. Yeah. Yeah, And then, of course, they, you know... They offer food. And then when I try to go pay for lunch, they won't let us pay.
0: Uh, they won't even
1: let me pay for my lunch.
0: Oh, yeah. They should let you pay so, for yours at least. Yeah,
1: I know. But they wouldn't even... I mean, so so I'm trying to be generous to him, but they're being generous to us. So I, you know, <laughs> And then he will give them a, a blessing. So there is a kind... Of, and it's beautiful to see, actually. Mm. It's really lovely. Mm. I feel like I'm taking advantage of a situation, you know, but it's... I, what can I do? Yeah. And, right, and right. so, but it's, it's, um,
0: you could, I guess you could leave them some money somehow, you know. Yeah. If there's a tip um, jar somewhere.
1: <laughs> yeah, I do that. But it's, it's just, it's just a, yeah. So it's, it's, um, you know, the, the cultures that are used to that tradition, that's just what they do. They don't, even, it's not even a, there's no thought involved. They sure. just do it. And mm-hmm. it's beautiful to see. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know that. There are, you know, like monasteries that have been set up, they will, I mean, in this country or even in England, you know, they will do alms rounds as a kind of place. They don't do it every day, obviously. But often the community, and, and of course, this brings up a whole other discussion, which we need to bring in a guest for at some point, but of cultural you know, these these cultural norms and cultural, what's the word? I don't want to, they're, they're not conflicts, but so, you know, we're, these cultures, so there, there are many Western monks who have trained in the Thai forest tradition. Or in <clears throat> there are many Western monks who have trained in Sri Lanka. And these communities, the Thai community, the Sri Lankan community, when they establish centers and monasteries in the U.S., those communities support those centers and so here you have you know these you know Western monks say at the big monasteries in England that I think is are where the first Western monasteries in the Thai forest tradition were established I think they're supported by the Thai communities and yet they're all Western monks and so there is a kind of uh, you know a sympathetic relationship between them all and the same thing with Sri Lankan, the Sri Lankan community supporting, say, Bhante Gunaratana's monastery in in, um, in West Virginia, eastern West Virginia. Mm-hmm. They come out from Washington and they they support it. So it's, I mean, he is Sri Lankan, so that makes sense. But when he passes, you know, there may be a Sri Lankan uh, person that comes in, a monastic that comes in to, to uh, be the abbot of that monastery. But but originally that wasn't the plan. It was going to be a Westerner, and so you know, there is that cultural mix that goes on there. So that you have the the, the culture from which these traditions grew up, you know, s- supporting the Western practitioners
0: of that particular culture. Um, I have to say, one of the nice nice things about all of this, frankly, from from my point of view, is that you get some really nice food out of it. That's true. <laughs> I mean, a Thai food. I'm mm. sure Sri Lankan food is probably. I haven't had Sri Lankan, or at least I haven't knowingly had Sri Lankan food. I imagine it's something like Indian. And, yeah, uh, I think so. Uh, uh, delicious. I love. I love the food. Oh, and yeah, that's yeah. that's that's if you're way. on
1: retreat there for sure. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> or I guess if you're a
0: monastic, but sure. uh, and, and are receiving it. That's sort of getting into the, the the pleasure of the food, which they say you're not supposed to do. Exactly. Um, so and you so really that, wonder
1: what's happening. You know, right? It's like well, in the in those, yeah.
0: I mean, coming from the point of view of a of a layperson, um, uh, you know, they they may be lax in certain respects. I guess I would be lax lax in that respect because I would get, you know, <laughs> I think I would get into the taste.
1: Yeah. And but I just wonder like on the, on the monastic side like, well, what's happening in their minds, you know, when when the when the the food is like really delicious yeah. or really horrible. Mm-hmm. You know, cuz there was I remember being on a monastic retreat at a At a Catholic retreat center outside of montreal and, and and no offense to any of our Catholic listeners, but often the food in in those kind of centers is really bad <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> i mean in this case, it was really bad i mean yeah. I don't know how we got through the five days ourselves, yeah. you know, but the monastics received it and and uh and there it was. I think it's an interesting place of practice. Now, what we haven't talked about, just in terms of food, is mindful eating.
0: Uh, Yeah, of course, yeah.
1: And, you know, this is a really big thing. And, you know, generally speaking, when we eat in our normal day-to-day lives, we're often doing more than one thing. You know, whether we're eating alone, if we're eating alone, we may be watching something or reading something. At the very least, we're probably thinking about something else. And, you know, our practice would be to remind us to come back to actually be with the food that we're eating. And and that brings in so many things because we're we're talking about the nature of the food itself, you know, the taste, the smell, the the texture. And then of course, you know, if we look at the teachings of Thich Nhat Han, it's not only like the all of that, but it's like how did the food even get here? Mm. you know what was the whole process that, that that went into receiving this food at this moment who were all the people that brought us what about the sun and the water and all of those things are all part of this food that we eat and then of course this food that we eat you know gets processed in this body and becomes something else altogether mm-hmm. and it's like whoa so you you take all of that in as you're eating and it's this kaleidoscopic kind of experience. And all you're doing is taking a bite of one. Sure.
0: Yeah. And it can make you more sort of, I think, wishing to like buy from local farms or local people if you can. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Certainly there's that as well. I I know that. I mean, that's one of the things that uh, draws me and and drew me to, you know, living out in the countryside is that at least for part of the year, you have stuff that's available to you food directly grown from the farms
1: yeah and i mean some people practice you know locovores they'll they'll do it all the time i mean which limits what they can eat during the winter right you know and and i know that and you know we don't just so you know uh, listeners that doug and i talked about this beforehand but we sort of were staying away from the whole discussion of vegetarianism and veganism but i will say that uh we know of one person who you know was Asked to be in order to become part of a particular Buddhist uh, tradition, you know, it was they had to be vegetarian. But she lived; she was a locovore. and it was much more important to her that she buy locally and and be fed from the local than because of all the energy that gets consumed just getting food from one place to another. And it would would have been impossible for her to be a vegetarian. Um, you know, because it was more important for her to, to, to eat what was local. And so that comes into play and, and, uh, yeah, there's so much, this is a rich conversation.
0: Yeah. And it's frankly,
1: it's making me hungry and actually (laughs) thinking about, you know, maybe even coffee.
0: Yeah. Coffee is another thing that is a wonderful, (laughs) wonderful thing to have every day. (laughs) yeah uh, you which, can't which, have it locally that's the problem you know i mean because that's locally. true
1: unless you live in certain places yeah at least uh, me, it's I hard can't. to have your local coffee but we do love it when you buy us coffee i should say our listeners because yeah. it does support us and you can do that through digging the dharma you know there was always a question speaking of coffee though there was always a question in my mind as to whether coffee was okay you know as a as because we there is the fifth precept about you know
0: and non-intoxicants but yeah. non-intoxicants but and, that's and that's more about alcohol i think i know, you know i know so
1: um and it turns out many monastics i know drink a lot of coffee
0: yeah coffee and tea is has yeah. al- have always been especially yeah. tea in 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 uh, china course. and so on yeah. has, has yeah. always been sort of a a a staple of buddhist uh, yeah. monasticism yeah. i think
1: so yeah there's there's a, a you know, this is a rich topic so there's you know just the whole you know, being on monastic retreats, generally there isn't a lot of, you know, for the people that are on the retreats who are not monastics, when it comes to later in the day, you know, there's there's light, they call it tea time, tea, you know, so there is tea, <laughs> but there may be crackers, there may be cheese, there may be fruit, there may be peanut butter, things like that, mm. but there's very little. And I think... There is something healthy about having your big meal in the middle of the day. I would say, um, when you're on retreat, you're not necessarily expending a lot of physical energy, so you need less energy, uh, which would come from the food. Um, you burn less calories, I think. Um, so there's a certain nutritional, I think, rationale to it as well.
0: Mm-hmm. I mean, but also, I mean, I just mentioned this whole issue of. of... Alcohol, which is another subject in in eating and food that we haven't really touched on. And another thing that can be somewhat controversial. I have a glass of wine or two with dinner. I I don't. Well, we both live with people that grew up in Europe. Yeah, we both (laughs) live with people. So that's kind of normal. Sure. Europeans, yeah. Um, But, you know, it's. on, On the other hand, I do know some Buddhist monastics who say. That, you know, basically the Buddha's stricture against alcohol was more a stricture against drunkenness, because that's the real issue. Um, that's, that's where the fifth precept becomes a violation of one of the first four. In other words, right. that the, right. the precept against alcohol is not that there's some specific thing about alcohol, but rather that becoming intoxicated makes you more likely to violate one of the other the first right. four precepts. Uh, clouds the mind I think it clouds it's the cold. mind yeah and that's the reason why you right. should avoid it uh at least for some people at least for th- those of us who are lucky enough to be able to ingest a little bit and mm-hmm. stop because I, there are obviously people who can't who are right. who tend to become alcoholic and then of course it, it it has to be a problem and has to be avoided completely
1: yeah and and also you know one one would have Wine, as a, I mean, wine is a very, or any sort of alcohol, let's face it, 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 I mean, I don't know what it was like back then, of course, when the precept was written, but it's, it, it would usually be imbibed for a specific reason to make you feel a certain way, as opposed to a nutritional reason. But right. Maybe I'm yeah. wrong. I mean, I, I don't know. No, I mean, um, he, but certainly Buddha... now it's, it's a, it's an aesthetic, it's a pleasure.
0: Right, right. Well, in the right. Buddha's day, it seems, I mean, at least in the suttas, it seems to have been used. Uh, at least the Buddha describes people sort of using it to get drunk, and right. you know uh, he talks about some of the the problems with alcohol. And there's health problems; people get sick because of it. People yeah. uh, spend all their money because of it. There's a whole number of issues with alcohol, but it it makes it pretty clear that it was being it was being used, you know, by people who were drinking a lot of it and getting drunk. Um, yeah. I mean, and the other thing to, to realize in all of this, and I think it's something that, that s- some people may not, real, may not realize, is that there's, there are differences between different Buddhist schools on all of this. Sure. So, I mean, for example, with vegetarianism, in Theravada and in parts of Tibetan Buddhism, uh, meat-eating is, is normal. I mean, it may not necessarily be looked upon well by everybody, but it's, it's not considered wrong. Whereas in many Eastern forms of Buddhism, it is you have to be vegetarian, and the opposite is true with alcohol. Where in in Theravada, many people believe that you should always avoid alcohol, uh, especially in the monastic community. But in you know there are some. I remember he- reading about or hearing about this that there are some, for instance, Zen monasteries that produced uh, sake, oh, right. that brew sake. You know, right, and it's right. like. I mean, could you have a bigger difference, difference, you know? (laughs) So you have to be careful not to overgeneralize about any of this stuff within a Buddhist context. Because, you know, you cross a border and you're going to find people who practice quite differently, even within the same, you know, quote unquote religion.
1: And I know in Thailand and maybe in Burma, they they were always talking about the current, I mean, this is more contemporary, but Mm. they, they chew this seed.
0: Oh, is it betel nut or something? Yeah, betel nut. Mm.
1: You know, and I don't know what betel nut. What the? It's probably
0: a stimulant, is my guess. I right. Think that's what yeah. It was, yeah. So so it's sort of know, like coffee, a, basically. Yeah.
1: So they they chew that. But just before we close, and this is reflecting back, I think on a podcast we did a while ago, but it's related to drinking, mm. sort of, because um, I think we talked about um, David data having the getting the elephant drunk.
0: No, and, I don't think uh, so.
1: Did we? We didn't talk about that, and we were talking about. So there's a story of Devadatta who was trying to take over the Sangha, you know, and was trying to, like, get rid of the Buddha, um, even though he was his cousin. <laughs> and he was failing in all sorts of ways. And finally, <laughs> it had to, I think we were talking about animals or, I can't remember what the conversation was. But anyway, he gets this, the elephant drunk and the elephant goes charging through the town, right? And, and it's like aiming toward the Buddha. And the Buddha just calmly like puts his hand oh, up yeah, yeah, and the yeah, elephant yeah, yeah. stops, mm-hmm. right? Well, it turns out I was listening to a podcast about animal behavior and, and, um, elephants actually do like a particular kind of alcohol. <laughs> and, and if you have that alcohol in your house in India, the elephant will smell it and will actually like break through a wall oh in order to get this particular kind of alcohol and, and drink it. So e- elephants getting drunk is not that, uh, and well, I don't know how usual it is, but it's it, it is a true thing. They do sure, they do, yeah, they do yeah. like alcohol, and and uh, so do not. I don't recommend getting elephants <laughs> don't get drunk. an elephant drunk. Yeah, yeah that's
0: that's going to be so, our PSA for the day. Right. Okay.
1: <laughs> anyway, this is a very interesting conversation, and we look forward to hearing your uh, feedback, your comments, and uh, please don't hesitate to write us. Even if you disagree completely with anything we've said, in fact, we like those kind of uh, comments. And and if you um, care to become a member, we could even bring you on the show directly and we can talk about all sorts of things.
0: That's right. Yeah, we'll, have, yeah, we'll be so, doing that. Once again, great. we've done it before and we'll do it again.
1: Yeah. So, thank you, Doug. Always a pleasure. Good to talk and, with you, John. Uh, until next time, Yep. dig the Dharma. <laughs> <laughs> I will. Thanks for listening. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider leaving a review on your local podcast directory. It would help us out a lot. You can check John out at JohnAaron.net and Doug at Doug's Dharma on YouTube and his Patreon page linked in the notes. You've been listening to Digging the Dharma with Doug Smith and John Aaron.